Well, I would invite you to take your Bibles and return back to Luke chapter 19. We'll continue our celebration of God and His glory and how great He is in His grace by looking at the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. This is your first Sunday here. We, are, we don't think that next Sunday is Easter, okay? Though it feels like it outside, doesn't it? Kidding. Um, we are, it's, it'll, it'll catch on what I'm saying here in a minute. Um, we are studying the Gospel of Luke, and we are here, we just kind of left off here at chapter 19, and this is where we're at today. I, I got visions of spring, though, this week as I was studying, thinking about the fact that usually this is the passage you preach right before Easter, and, and as I looked out the window and saw the people shivering as they're walking by my office, I just thought, oh yeah, spring will come, it will come. But I don't really remember a winter like this in many years, uh, cold and snow like this. So I guess when God opens a door for us to go to Canada, he prepares us for that mission, right? I mean, that's what's going on here is he's just getting us all ready to go. So, well, we're going to be looking here this morning at verses 29 through 40 as we pick up our study. But would you just join me as I open our time in prayer? Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the privilege we have of being here. I thank you for uh, just the great songs that we have sung of, of how able you are, of your grace and your power to save us, to refine us, to make us yours. I thank you, God, that we've been reminded of those truths, and may that just prepare our hearts now to hear your word, to receive it, and to be transformed. Lord, may we see Christ in all of his glory today, and may it for forever changes. And it's in his name I pray. Amen. I ask you a question here this morning to kind of get your, your brain going, but how, how would you define worship? If you were going to just have to give a definition, if you had to give a lecture on worship, how would you define it? What would be some of the pictures? Maybe if you're a picture thinker, if you think in concepts like that, what are some of the pictures that come to your mind when you think of worship, or maybe some of the words or the thoughts that kind of generate in your mind when you think of worship, or, or maybe experiences that you had that would make you say, this is, I had an experience like this, and this is what worship is. And I wanted us to think about that this morning because of this text, and because of the fact that this is a text where Jesus is receiving worship. And, and years ago, I came across a wonderful definition of worship. In fact, <clears throat> I can say this, that every single book on worship that I have in my, in my library, which I got about 15 or so, all of them have this quote in it. This was a quote by William Temple. He was the Archbishop of Canterbury from 1942 to 1944. And, uh, and when, when he wrote this down, when he, when he made this statement, this became in one sense, a, a very, very common, well-used definition of worship. Like I said, you will find this in almost every book on worship. Let me give you the quote here. This is what William Temple said. He said, To worship is to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God, to feed the mind with the truth of God, to purge the imagination by the beauty of God, to open the heart to the love of God and to devote the will to the purpose of God. It's quite a definition of worship, isn't it? 
It's an incredible statement. I mean, just, just think about what he talks about in God when he references God. He talks about the holiness of God. He talks about the truth of God, the beauty of God, the love of God, the purposes of God. He says, listen, God is holy and, and, he, and he is all truth and he's beautiful and he has this incredible amount of love and he has a purpose for the ages and for all of history. And worship is when your conscience and your mind and your imagination and your heart and your will are all aligned to his holiness, his truth, his beauty, his love, and his purpose. That's worship. Now, that's a very deep definition of worship. I mean, we could, we could spend a lot of time unpacking that statement. But really, if you were to kind of put it all together, what he's saying is, is, is that worship is engaging the totality of God with the totality of man. All that you are engaging all that God is. So suddenly it elevates, this, this definition of worship, elevates worship to something bigger than just an experience, though that's part of it. It suddenly starts getting into who you are and who God is. And when that happens, suddenly things change. This is why I think John Piper, I like his definition or his statement about worship. He says, worship is not a means to an end. It's an end in of itself. It's when my life is aligned with God's life and, and my heart and my will and my conscience and my emotions and all that I am are all aligned with his beauty, his holiness, his truth, his love, his purposes. Then I'm living in a state of worship. And worship then becomes way bigger and much more profound than just a, an experience that you can have with God. thought about all that this week for a reason. Jesus is entering into Jerusalem, and there are people worshiping him. In fact, you kind of have three things going on, really. As Jesus is entering into Jerusalem, the people are worshiping him, but they're not worshiping him for who he is. They're worshiping him for what he's done. So they see these things that he's done. They say, man, you're, you're incredible. You could do all this for us and probably more. And they start ascribing praise to him. So they're not necessarily saying, this is who you are. They're not seeing what he's doing. They're not con contemplating the cross at this moment. They're thinking of something different. You've got them. You've got the Pharisees who are here, and they don't want to worship Jesus. They, they hate him. They want him dead. And you've got the disciples who are completely confused and afraid. They don't want to go into Jerusalem because they think they're going to die. And so you've got this kind of wealth of responses to Jesus. You've got confusion, you've got misconception, and you've got rebellion. And of course, as you look at this, you start thinking, boy, that, I don't think this is the only time in history when that's happened. I think that can define a lot of the world. It can define a lot of people. A lot of people gather to worship Jesus because they, they, they have this definition of what they want him to be, and that's what they come to him for. You've got some people that have no clue. They're just confused. They do love him, but they don't understand who Jesus is. They don't understand what it means to follow him. And, of course, you've got those who reject him outright. But one of the great things about the Gospel of Luke is that he's trying to define for us who Jesus is. He said that at the very beginning in chapter 1. I'm writing this letter because I want you to know what you've already believed. Theophilus, you believe in Jesus. Now let me explain him to you. Let me cut through all the confusion. Let me cut through all of the misconceptions. Let me cut through all of the rebellion, and let me show you who Jesus is. And what we have in the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem 
is Jesus defining what it means that he is the king. What it means that he is the king. And what that should mean for everybody who follows him. So maybe you love Jesus this morning and you're confused. You don't understand things. Well, you start getting it. We're going to see what it means that Jesus is king. And they'll cut through that confusion. Maybe you have a misconception of Jesus. This is going to cut through that misconception and show you who Jesus is. Maybe your heart is hard towards the gospel. This should cut through this and show you who Jesus is. This is what Luke is trying to do. Because what he wants us to do is, is I believe, what William Temple said. He wants our consciences to, you know, totally quickened by the holiness of God and our mind by the truth of God, our imagination touched by the beauty of God, our heart touched by the love of God, and our will aligned to the purposes of God. So that's what we're going to see here. Now, so we'll, we'll unpack this, and today we're going to see this picture of Jesus. But as we do, let's not forget what the point of chapter 19 does, or how chapter 19, I should say, sets up the triumphal entry. We talked about this last week, that there are four things that, uh, that, that we learn about Jesus in this chapter that you can't forget when you think of Jesus going into Jerusalem, going to the cross. Four important things. First thing is that Jesus' mission is to seek and save the lost. That's what he's doing. This is what Christ is about. He did not come for the healthy. He came for the sick. He did not come to gather a bunch of people who didn't need him so they could just hang with him until the end of the age. He came to say, listen, there's a lot of people who are sick, and i got to go reach them. Okay, so that's what he's come for, to seek and save the lost. Second, he is the king, chapter 19 tells us, but he's delaying the fullness of the kingdom. The fullness of the kingdom is not come. It's inaugurated as first coming, but there's a delay. There's a delay. Now, the people aren't thinking this delay is happening. They're all thinking it's going to come in full, and that's why they're worshiping him. But, but chapter 19, the story of the ten minus tells us there's a delay. The third thing we have to remember is that the servants then are given the responsibility to carry out the business of the master while he's gone. So he's the king, but there's a delay and he's asked his servants to carry on his business, seeking and saving the lost while he's gone. Okay, that's, that's the business. And the fourth thing chapter 19 tells us is that if you refuse to honor him as king, you'll face damnation. You will face damnation. He is the king. And destruction comes to those who rebel. That sets the table. That's all of what 19 sets the table for, the first 27 verses or so, to now bringing us to the entry of Jesus. Now, we're just going to look at his entry today, and we're going to see two things. Over the next few weeks, we'll see several things unfold about the nature of Jesus. I'll point them out to you. This, this week, we'll see two. The two things we're going to see is that Jesus is the king of peace and that he is also the king of glory. Now, here's what I want you to catch from this. I want you to understand something, that when you see that Jesus is the king of peace and the king of glory, here's how that should impact your life. It should give you an eternal view of the world. Now, I'll explain this, so it won't make sense to you now. But it should give you an eternal view of the world that changes your life from bringing glory to yourself to bringing glory to Jesus. So that's what I want you to see. That, that, that suddenly, when you see who Jesus is as king, it'll give you an eternal view of life and then suddenly the motive shifts from what's best for me to what's best for God's glory in Christ. So that's what I hope that you see today. 
So let's jump deep into the pool here, and let's see it. Let's look here. Follow along as I start reading in verse 29. It says, When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as it had told them. And as they were untying the colt, the owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. I used to joke and say, Luke 19.34 was my life verse. I could just walk in and take anything I want. Just say, The Lord has need of it. But, But that doesn't work. So... It's no longer my life verse, okay? (laughs) So here's what we have in Luke. Starting in chapter 9, verse 51, Jesus said he set his face to go to Jerusalem. So now he's on his way to Jerusalem. He's heading down. And for these 10 chapters, we've been following him down, and he's built up a crowd of people on this walk from Galilee down to Jerusalem. So that's what's happened. He's walked down. He's been doing miracles, doing incredible things, all the way to the point where just... Right before this, he raises Lazarus from the dead, and there is this crowd of people that are following him into Jerusalem. They're making their way anyways because it's Passover time. And this moment is electrified. You've got people who are absolutely pumped, thinking the kingdom is coming in full, their king has arrived, and glory of Israel will finally be established. We finally got the one we've been waiting for. And they're just electrified. The disciples are terrified We can't go to Jerusalem. We're going to die. We're going to die, but they go anyways. And and the Pharisees are angry, and they hate him, and they want him dead. So you could imagine the emotion of this moment. Just kind of picture it in your mind as Jesus is right outside of Jerusalem. He's actually been making his way up a hill. So they've been walking up, and and, and I could just, I'm picturing it in my mind, crowds following him, people at the gate uh, Pharisees standing on the side, having these little meetings and these side meetings, plotting how they're going to do away with this guy. Disciples just like, I don't know if this is a good idea, but we'll go. You know, and, and how much emotion must have been there. And as Jesus gets to this moment, we can see in the text, what does he say? He says, okay, he's just on this doorstep of going. And he says, okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go into this village you're going to see a cult. I want you to take it. I want you to untie this thing. And when the guy comes to you and says, hey, what are you doing with my donkey? Say, the Lord has need of it. And he'll let you go. So they go and they do it. Now, what is the significance of this moment? What's the significance of this passage? In order to understand what's going on there, you have to understand the book of Zechariah. Okay, because this is all grounded in the book of Zechariah. So let me give you the Steve Lesson paraphrase of the book of Zechariah. Okay, quick little run through of this book. The book of Zechariah is simply this Israelites are in the land, they've come back to the land after the exile. They've been told, you gotta rebuild the temple. They start the process of rebuilding the temple, they're getting pretty pumped, but could you imagine rehabbing a temple? that has been sacked, destroyed, and left for many, many, many years. 
Trying to rehab a temple would be very long and arduous and discouraging. So they lose heart and they stop the process. They basically kind of, the, the, the whole rebuild grinds to a halt. God speaks through the prophet Zechariah and he says, Hey, guys, you gotta get back to rebuilding this temple. And here's the reason why I'm sending the Messiah. And this Messiah is gonna do incredible things. This Messiah is gonna forgive all your sins. This Messiah is going to make you new. This Messiah is going to end all the wars. This Messiah is going to bring peace to the nation of Israel. This Messiah is going to release all those that are in prison. This Messiah is going to dramatically change the world. And we need a temple for him to come into. So get busy building the temple. And in chapter 9, verse 9, chapter 9, verse 9, he says... Now, the way you're going to know who the Messiah is, is he's going to ride in on a donkey. And when he rides in on a donkey, that's the one. Okay, so there's the summary of Zechariah. Okay, so now Jesus knows I'm the one. And so what does he have to do? He's got to get a donkey. So he says, go into this village and get this donkey. Now, there's a lot of people that uh, really kind of freak out about this whole donkey incident. Did you know that? There's people who actually kind of get stressed about this donkey. They wonder, is Jesus stealing a donkey? <laughs> Seriously. People worry about this. I mean, I have gotten emails. Did Jesus steal a donkey? So let me kind of set this straight. We don't know the arrangement Jesus had set up with this guy and this donkey. But let me give you other options other than Jesus stole a donkey. Okay, in case you're worried about it. Okay, it is possible that he had this prearranged with this guy already, right? That could be a possibility, and that was the code sign, right? I mean, it could be that Jesus had it arranged that, hey, I'm going to send a couple guys, and the way you're going to know they're my guys is when you're going to say, hey, what are you doing, my donkey? They're going to say the Lord has need of it, right? You could very easily have that be a code that was set up. You could have it set up that 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 they knew, everyone knew that Jesus was coming. And everyone knew that he was going to ride in. And, and so he was just, this guy was equally as pumped about Jesus coming. And, and everyone knew Jesus didn't own anything. He, you know, everything he had had to be given to him. And so it wouldn't have been that unreasonable for, for two of his disciples to go, hey, he needs it. I'll take it, right? So lots of things other than Jesus stole a donkey. Okay. So just in case you're worried, I say that half for the internet, not for you guys, that people who listen online, right? He didn't steal it. You know, lots of other options could have happened. But, but the bottom line is he gets the donkey. Now he rides in. Now notice verse 35, what happens. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. Okay, so now he's coming in. This is a very powerful moment. Uh, you probably have heard this before, and maybe some of your study Bibles will mention this. There's two ways that a, a ruler would enter into a village. One way a ruler would enter into a village was to say, I'm declaring war. And if he were doing that, he would show up with, uh, on a horse. It was kind of a symbolic gesture that I'm coming in to conquer. If a ruler's coming in to say, I'm not coming in to conquer you, he'd come in on a donkey. It was just a sign of peace. It was just very, very simple. Jesus is coming in on a donkey. He's coming in to basically send the signal, this is not intended to be a military threat. It's not intended to be a military threat. This is intended to come in 
to bring peace. But it is the sign of a, of a, of a dignitary coming in. And the people realize this, so they lay their cloaks on the ground. Now, why do they lay their cloaks on the ground? Well, you know, we use this phrase, you know, rolling out the red carpet. Familiar with that phrase? And, and in real life, they would do that. Like, I suppose if the Queen of England was coming here, we might consider turning those little runners red, possibly. I don't know. You know, something like that. It's a way of welcoming somebody. It's a way of showing honor to them. Well, in that day, you would have laid out big, leafy leaves. Leafy leaves? <laughs> I don't know. what. I'm not a plant guy, so... Jim, you're going to have to help me figure out what are big leaf, you know, whatever. Some big leafy thing, right? It's springtime in Israel, so there aren't a lot of big leaves, so they got two things they're going to lay down, palm branches and jackets. Probably, that would be my speculation as to why they're putting their jackets down. There probably aren't a lot of big uh, leaves available. So you're going to put down the next best thing, your jackets. But the point of it is this, not what they've laid down, the point is the heart. They are recognizing that he has come into this world, or he's coming in as the king, and they are honoring him this way. But I want you to notice that he's coming in on the donkey, which is signifying peace. He's coming to bring peace, which is a very powerful statement. Now, I want to explain to you something about Jesus bringing in peace. When you think of the word peace, I don't want you to think of the word peace like um, in this kind of mystical existential, like, Ah, peace, like that. Okay, it's not that kind of a thing. We're talking about bringing in peace. We're talking about the ending of war, the ending of conflict, right? There's two kinds of peace. I mean, one kind of peace is just turn on the jazz music, light some candles, and relax, right? Peace, like that. There's another kind of peace that basically says that I'm actually where there's conflict going on. So picture this. Picture two kids fighting in a home. And you've got this conflict coming in, and a parent steps in to address it. And what are they trying to do? They're trying to bring peace to the situation, trying to end the conflict. That's the kind of peace he brings in. Now, what does it take to bring in peace to this world? Well, it takes what you'd simply call this righteous authority. Righteous authority. You need two things to bring peace. You need righteous authority, you see, because the peace that Jesus is bringing is not the peace between Israel and Rome. It's not the peace that is going to be a political peace. It's not even the peace between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They didn't like each other. It's not even the peace between Jews and, and, and Samaritans at this point. It's the peace between God and man. There's a conflict there. Man has sinned. God is going to has one consequence for sin, that's death. That's conflict. Judgment is awaiting mankind. He's going to come in and bring peace. What do you need to bring peace to that? You need righteous authority. Righteous authority is this. Think, let's put it in the kids' context again. you got two kids fighting in a room. You could walk into the room and you could say, well, let's just let them fight it out. Eventually they'll stop. Okay, that's no authority there at all whatsoever. You're not showing any authority. You could walk into the room, and you could say, stop it, and take one kid and yank him this way, and take one kid and yank him this way, and you start pointing your finger and shouting and going over to this one, point your finger and shouting it, and come back over here and shout. That's authority, right? But it's not righteousness. What is righteous authority? Righteous authority is coming in, and it's simply this. It's shepherding 
the hearts of people so that they can walk and think and live in God's way. Righteous authorities, shepherding the hearts of people so that you can align someone's heart to God. You can align it to God. Jesus comes in with righteous authority. He's going to actually take our sin, the consequences of our sin upon himself, and bear God's wrath so that our hearts can be aligned with God. So that a parent can walk into a situation, right? What would righteous authority look like there? We would walk in by stopping the situation, having authority, separating the kids if needed to be, but sitting down and talking to them about their heart, talking about anger, and talking about pride, and talking about covetousness, or whatever the issues are, and saying, listen, this isn't right. The, the, the flesh of man never achieves anything but death and destruction. Don't go down this road, young man or young woman. This is a bad path. You're going down the path of destruction. Let me shepherd your heart and help you to see that. Right? Righteous authority. Righteous authority. That's what it takes. That's what Jesus did. When he comes in and you see him on the donkey, do not think about Jesus just as this kind of placid guy walking in. He's coming in on a mission not to beat up Rome, not to separate the kids and scream at them. Not with just authority. He's coming with righteous authority to deal with the hearts of people and to align people's hearts with the purposes of God. That, by the way, is the eternal perspective I talked about a little bit ago. That what is going on in this world is deeper than politics. It's deeper than just earthly relationships. All of life is about the alignment of people's hearts to God. Like William Temple said, is your, is your conscience, is your will, is your affections, your imagination, is it all aligned to who God is? This is what Jesus was about in this first coming, dealing with these issues, getting right down to the heart. And the eternal perspective of life is to start seeing the world through that lens, seeing the world through what Jesus is doing. Jesus dealing with people's hearts. That's what's going on. It's not just about the earthly conflicts you have. It's not just about our political conflicts. It's about what is God doing in the hearts of humanity. And you know what? He is at work in powerful ways. He's at work in powerful ways because he's the king of peace. That's what he's about. He's about bringing peace to people's hearts so they can be aligned to the purposes of God and thus live as worshipers of him forever. That's the king of peace. Now, let's look at the king of glory. Let's jump into the second part of this story. Verse 37. As he was drawing near... Already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So this is a powerful moment. They are just shouting and they're excited. And now again, they're not seeing Jesus as the King of peace here though, right? We know in the text what they've seen. They've seen him raise Lazarus from the dead. They've seen him heal people. They've seen him provide things for people. They've seen him feed people. I've seen all these things, and they're thinking, wow, I've never seen anybody can do so much for people. He can do a lot. This is our guy. This is it. He's going to come in. He's going to kick Rome out, and Israel will be it. We'll finally have the eternal 
kingdom of David that we've been waiting for all these years. They're, they're just excited. And so what do they do? They begin to sing a form of Psalm 118. Now, if you see what they see, this, this, this whole element of, of, of when they are praising him, and when they, when they lay out this praise, um, and they say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. That's a quote from Psalm 118. But if you flipped over to Psalm 118, it'd be worded slightly different than that. And here's the reason why. That psalm is what they call Psalm of Ascent. It's a song that the, the Israelites sung on their way up to Jerusalem when they would come for big festivals. They had their, you know, we have songs that we sing at certain times, right? You sing happy birthday when someone has a birthday, those kind of things like that. Right? These, they had Psalms of Ascent. If they were going to go to Jerusalem... And to go up and worship him on, on Passover or Feast of Tabernacles or whatever, as they were making their way up the hill, they would sing Psalm 118. Now, over the years, the Jewish rabbis began teaching on Psalm 118. And in the course of their teaching, they began to say, you know what, this isn't just about blessed is us that we're like making our way to Jerusalem. This song's actually about the Messiah. And so they, they, they came up with a teaching, a very common teaching, and they inserted the word king in their Jewish teaching. And they said, this is the song we're going to sing when the Messiah arrives. So they would sing a version of it, the Psalm 118 version, when they were walking up, but they knew that there was a reserved version of it that had little addendums, the word king and stuff. That's what they're singing here. Now again, it's not directly a quote from Scripture. It's their Scripture with their teaching laid on top of it. And so they are actually saying, you're the Messiah at this moment. You're it. They're assigning that rabbinic teaching to Jesus. This is what is making the religious leaders mad. Jesus is accepting the praise don't let anybody tell you Jesus never said that he was the Messiah. He never claimed to be the Messiah. Well, I'll tell you what, man. All those people are saying, you're the Messiah. And he's like, bring it on. Bring it on. I am. This is the moment to reveal this. It's a unique moment because this is the first time in Luke he actually says, yeah, I'm accepting it. Remember all other times he'd heal somebody say, don't tell anybody I'm the Messiah. Keep it a secret. Now is the moment. Let it all out. The religious leaders are seeing this moment and notice what they say in verse 39. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Right? They do not want this to happen. They don't want Jesus to say this. In fact, if you kind of look, I was looking at the Pharisees this week, and I was, kind of came up with three reasons why they hated Jesus so much. Three reasons behind this. Let me give them to you here just so you can understand them. The first reason is this, that Jesus made himself the center of the law. He said, listen, if you want to obey God, you got to do it my way. If you want to understand God, you got to understand him through me. If you want to follow God, you got to do it through me. I'm the interpreter of the law. I'm the arbiter of the law. I'm the Lord of the law. It's my rules. What I say is the only way to follow God. They didn't want that. They didn't, they didn't want to obey Jesus that way. Second reason why. Jesus would not uphold their traditions. You see, they placed their traditions as the, as the explainer and arbiter of the law. 
right? You have the law of God, and they said, well, this is what this means. So if the law says don't work on the Sabbath, we're going to tell you what that means. And on and on it goes. Jesus comes along and says, actually, the law don't work on the Sabbath. Here's what it means. And they said, no, you've got to uphold our traditions. You've got to do it our way. We've been on here for a long time. We've got lots of years behind us. We know what we're doing, Jesus. You've got to uphold our laws, our traditions. And he wouldn't. And the third thing that angered them equally as the other two is that Jesus had a strategy to engage the lost. They had a strategy that said, listen, this is who we are, and the lost needs to adapt to reach us. If they're going to come to us, they got to adapt their lives and come to us. And Jesus said, do you understand how dumb that is? That's like a doctor saying, I'm only taking care of well people. You got a cold? I'm sorry. You cannot come in here with that cold. You know, I don't want to get sick. <laughs> you know, could you imagine a doctor saying that? What's wrong with you? Is it contagious? Don't come in. Okay? You think that's not the point. The point is that I'm bringing redemption to humanity and I'm going and you guys are trying to say you're already saved and you want to huddle up over here and you want to make everybody adapt to you. And they got angry with him because he kept saying, no, I'd rather have dinner with these people over here. You can't do that. So they didn't like him. So now he comes in, makes himself the center of the law, will not acknowledge their interpretation of the law, has an eyes-out mentality, not an eyes-in mentality. They don't like him. And now all of Jerusalem is saying, you're the Messiah, and he's accepting the praise. And he, they say to him, you better, he doesn't just say tell them to stop, rebuke them, tell them they're wrong. That's what you have to catch. It's important because it'll help you understand the whole stones crying out in a minute. He says, they say to him, rebuke your disciples. Confront them. Tell them they're wrong. Jesus says, what? Do you understand that if I do that, that the very rocks will cry out? Now the question is, what does Jesus mean by that statement, the very rocks will cry out? I don't know ever thought about that. You could just make it simple that, you know, praise is going to happen this day, and if all humanity stopped, the very rocks would start going, blessed is the one who comes in, right? They'd start, inanimate objects would start praising me. He could be speaking in this kind of allegorical way of saying praise will happen. I think that's part of the answer. But I started wondering, is there any other place in the Bible where rocks cry out? Is there any other concept? This is, he's talking to Jews. He's talking to Pharisees who pride themselves in knowing the law of God, in knowing the Old Testament. And so I started asking myself, could there be an Old Testament illusion here that he's referring to? So you start digging around, and you know what you find out? There is a moment where some rocks cry out. And let me explain to you where they cry out. In the book of Habakkuk, I'm going to have to give you the paraphrase of Habakkuk. Habakkuk is a prophet. He's angry. The people in Judah are just in, living in rebellion towards God, living in rebellion towards humanity. They're just they're horrible, wicked, cruel people. Habakkuk says, God, I can't understand why you would allow this amount of rebellion to go on in the world for this amount of time. You've got to do something. And God says, oh, Habakkuk, you think I've been not doing anything? I've been doing something. I've actually raised up the worst army in the history of the world. They're going to rape and pillage and plunder and destroy you and kill about two-thirds of you. Yeah, I'm, I've, been, I've been at work. Don't worry. Habakkuk says, yeah, wait a minute, God. There is no way 
that you being God could come up with a plan like that. That's offensive to your very nature. I'm going to stand right here, and I'm going to demand you answer me. That's what he says to God. And God says, oh, Habakkuk, you, you, you forgot something. I'm God, you're man. And you walk by faith. You have to trust that I know what I'm doing. There's your answer, bud. Trust me. Do you trust that this is the right plan? And then he says, now, Habakkuk, do you really think, this is the paraphrase, right? Do you really think I'm that dumb? I'm going to bring judgment against the Chaldeans. I know they're bad. I'm going to judge them. I'm going to judge them immensely. In fact, you know what they've done? They go out to countries and they pillage and they plunder and they take all this stuff and they build their cities and they build their empires by unrighteous means. And they do all these horrible things. And when they build their cities, they build it all purely on rebellion towards me. And anybody who tries to build a city in rebellion towards me is going to face judgment. And in fact, you know what's going to happen to them? They're going to build up their cities in rebellion towards me. And once their houses are built, what does he say, Habakkuk 2, 9 through 11? He says, woe to him who gets evil gain from his house to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many people's you have, you have forfeited your life, for the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. He's saying, listen, the rocks are going to cry out, judgment, judgment, judgment against you. You live in rebellion towards me, and the very rocks will cry out, judgment. Now, I thought about that. I thought, is there a connection? In Luke 19, these guys say, listen, Rebuke these people. Tell them that you're not the Messiah. Jesus says, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would cry out. And then what's the next thing he says that Luke records? And when he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it. Why? Verse 43, for the days will come upon you. Your enemies will set up barricades around you. You will be destroyed. Judgment's coming. I think there's an imagery there. I think it's a little bit more than just Jesus saying inanimate objects will worship if they stop worshiping. I think that's part of it. But I think the full of it is, if you pull the imagery out, is he's saying this moment will happen. And if you silence them, the rocks will cry out. They will cry out. But they're not just going to cry out, Hosanna. They're going to cry out, Hosanna, judgment's coming upon you. I think that's the image because that's where the text takes us next. It's right to the judgment of God. You see, here's the reality. Jesus is the king. And he's the king of peace. He's coming in to deal with his eternal thing. And what matters is what he's doing because all the praise and the glory is for him. We build the houses for him. We do the work for him. Everything we do is for him and his glory. And the moment someone stands in the way and says, listen, I don't want that kind of glory. I want it about me. I want about what's best for me. God will be most happy if I'm happy first. It's about my plan. It's about my will. It's about me. Once you put yourself there and you say, I don't really care about the glory of God. What happens? The text tells us, and we'll see it next week, Lord willing, 
judgment comes. Because he says, if you, if you would have understood the things that made for peace, the condemnation wouldn't have come upon you. Your cities and walls wouldn't have been destroyed. You've built Jerusalem on the same walls the Chaldeans built their walls. Not on the Messiah, not on the glory of God, but on yourself. Judgments befalling you. So let's wrap it up. What does this mean? We've seen Jesus is the king of peace, right? He's coming to deal with man's heart, aligning people's hearts towards God. And he's the king of glory. And as the king of glory, what that means is that he's doing all this because he deserves the praise. We do it for him. We do it for his purposes. We do it for all of his glory. And those are the truths that are there. So this week, this challenged me in three ways. And what I want to do is I want to, I want to share with you how, when I was meditating on this passage, how, how I was beat up. And I'll, I'll offer it to you and, uh, as, as maybe a way of, of helping you. But, but let me just tell you what this passage did for me. Three things. This passage challenged me to have an eternal understanding of the world. I began to realize that Jesus, as he's walking in, the people weren't seeing what Jesus was about. Disciples were confused. The people were deceived. The leaders were in rebellion. But no one really was grasping what Jesus was about. Next week we're going to see he makes that statement. He goes, no one understood what I was doing. No one got it. And I began to ask myself, I wonder how much in my life do I live my life missing what Jesus is doing? Because I'm living on a very temporal plane. I'm making it about the fact that I hate the cold weather. Okay? <laughs> you know? And I don't like getting up and starting my car. And I mean, talk about being a baby. I just don't like it. I don't like that feeling after, you know, after you get in your car, after it's been sitting outside and leaving, leaving the office and it's cold and I'm like driving home like this. And, and, and I mean, I just, and I, and I get like caught up in that world. And then once I get caught up in that world, it just takes the weather like that to throw me into that world. And then once I'm in that world, I start, only start looking at that plane. I only start thinking, boy, you know, how are you guys helping me out here? What are you guys doing for me? Or I start thinking about my fulfillment. Or I start thinking about what I need to be happy or what I need to... And all of a sudden, I'm on just this plane of me. And it just takes over. And then conflicts begin. And I start seeing people as the enemy. And I start seeing things as getting in the way. Red lights as getting in the way of my agenda. And all this stuff just starts taking over. And I realize, boy... Jesus is saying, do you understand what I'm doing in the world? And Luke 19 says, listen, do you understand you're carrying on his mission while he's gone, till he returns? And I realize I've got to have an eternal perspective. Then the second thing that this challenged me, this passage challenged me to see the glory of Jesus as the goal of life. It's amazing how my goals can very easily be dissuaded from the glory of Jesus. Because what happens is that I kind of make my comfort the glory. If, it's, if it makes me uncomfortable, <clears throat> if it causes me to have to die to myself, if it causes me to have to, to give up this world, right? What did Jesus say? You know, 
you're, if you're willing to let go of everything, you can have life in the next. But if you're willing to say, listen, I want it all now, you can't have life in the next. We know that. We can make those statements. But then I realized in life, man, my comfort sometimes like, this is making me uncomfortable. It must not be the will of God. This is causing me to have to give up my rights. It must not be the will of God. This is causing me to have to die to myself and serve someone that I can't stand. This must not be the will of God. God's will is clearly set in making me happy. Right? He gets up every day thinking about the same thing I think about. What's best for my pleasure? Right? You see how I can get, I'm talking about me here. Like, I struggle with that. And that's what happens. It challenges. And suddenly I realize, man, God, can I get up and say, listen, if this problem never goes away and it causes me to die to myself every day, then let it be so, if that's the best way to bring glory to you. That's the challenge. That's how that challenge challenged me. I want to give glory to Jesus for what he's doing, not for what I get from him. For his plan, his purposes. And recognizing sometimes that means death to self. So the third thing then, I came up with an aim, a life aim. What I should aim for in life is very simple. And this is what I said at the very beginning. An eternal view of the world that is centered upon the glory of Jesus. Can I see what it means that he's the king of peace and the king of glory? And can those two truths become my new way of living and operating in the world? So I won't put my pleasure, you know, I'll struggle with it, but when I see it, I say, no, let me serve, let me die, let me realize that, that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to give up on this life to gain in the next. That's a better way to live. Do I believe that? Jesus is the, the king of peace and the king of glory. Let's pray. Father, these are challenging words. They're, they're tough for me. You know my flesh. You know how I struggle with my agenda, how I struggle with my love of comfort, how I struggle with believing that you'll only lead me in areas that, that are happy. But Lord, allow me to press through those temporal shallow views pray all of us would be able to see what you're doing. You are at work, working in people's hearts, changing people, aligning people's hearts to, to, to live for you and to serve you. And that your mission is about doing that in the lives of people that are in bad places. And you've called us to be in those places. To serve, to show kindness and to forgive and to not see people as the enemy and to not see things as getting in the way of our pleasure or our agenda. So God, help us all to set aside our agenda. Help us all to, to begin to see what it means that you bring peace to this world and help us to start finding our satisfaction and bringing glory to you. Lord, may it be true, as John Piper said, that, that this kind of worship, this kind of living would be the goal of our life, the end not a means to an end, but the very end. May we align our hearts and our wills and our consciences and our imaginations to who you are. Lord, as we continue to unpack the glory of Jesus these next few weeks, Lord, may we see him.
may it cut through the confusion. May it cut through the deceptions and the rebellions of our lives. And that we might worship him as our king. In Christ's name, amen.